Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah the 6th chapter, we're going to read right there at the top of the chapter momentarily. We'll be all over the Bible this morning, and so let's get those pages turning to Isaiah the 6th chapter. as We read together and study together and uh, consider together the Word of God. Returning to Isaiah 6, let me join in the welcome from earlier. We just have a good, really good number in attendance this morning. So glad that you're here, glad that you made the decision to be here this day as we have joined our Voices together in song, we have blended our, our hearts together in prayer, and for these next few minutes now, we want to join our minds together in the study and the consideration of the Bible, of God's Holy Word. There's much to say this morning, and I want to get right to it. In Isaiah, the sixth chapter, read with me here, beginning in verse number one. Isaiah six, verse one, the prophet says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. and Your sin is atoned for. Does anybody remember in the last, I don't know, week, week and a half or so, getting a, getting a card like this in the mail? If you're a Somerset resident, chances are you probably did get this little card in the mail. This is a card that you may have, you may have not even really noticed. It may have been shuffled in with lots of junk mail and maybe you chucked it in the trash. Maybe you noticed it and you still chucked it in the trash anyway, but not me. I collect these. I collect these kinds of things all the time. This is one of those mass mailing advertisements that gets sent out by denominational churches. And this particular mailing comes from a denominational church right here in town. Tiffany and I, we got one mailed to our home residence and we got this one here mailed to the church building. And the card simply advertises and pitches this idea, here are five reasons why you ought to come to our church And start out your new year with us. Now, I want to say, before I say anything else, there is nothing wrong with advertisements. There's nothing wrong with mass mailings. There's nothing wrong with well-designed postcards. We make use of those very same kinds of tools and resources from time to time. That can be a good thing. That can be a helpful thing. However, I was struck, and maybe you were as well if you paid attention to it, I was struck by the five things that are mentioned here as the reasons why you ought to visit and worship with this church. Specifically, this one right down here in the bottom right-hand corner. I'll put it up on the screen for you. This church says, at our church, we have a weekend experience, not a weekend service. A weekend experience, not a weekend service. 
Now, I had a pretty good idea of what that probably meant, but I wanted to be sure. I wanted a little bit of clarification. So I went to their website. And in the About Us section of their website, here's what was stated. They say, We have witnessed how the worship experience can transform who we are and how we see God. The worship experience. Are you familiar with that terminology? Have you heard that phrase before? Are you familiar with this idea of churches offering a worship experience to the worshiper. If you're not familiar with that idea, let me allow a fellow by the name of James Norred to elaborate a little bit. James Norred is a blogger, and James Norred is also a member of the Church of Christ. James Norred recently did some writing about why he believed churches of Christ are shrinking. He argued that the Church of Christ, and I quote here, the Church of Christ is a left-brain church, in a right-brained world. What Norad said in his article is that in a world of video screens and smartphones and music videos, people today are turned off when they come into a church of Christ and they hear a lecture. What people want, he said, is an experience. They want to feel something. They want to be part of something that moves them emotionally. And so churches that offer sermons and Bible classes and someone who gets up and tries to explain the Scriptures, what Norad says is he says people don't want that. In particular, young people don't want that. In his words, it doesn't speak their language. What people are looking for, Norad said, is lights. Loud music, video screens, everyone on their feet feeling the passion and excitement of a worship experience. In fact, Norad concluded in his article that if we don't change, if we don't adapt to the times, we're going to die. That we're just going to wither up, we're going to die, we're going to evaporate, because people today, what they are looking for is a worship experience. What do we say about that? What do we say about that when we get these kinds of things in the mail and that seems to be the prevailing thought of this day and time? Is that something that we ought to be offering to people as a church? Maybe we need to start dimming the lights in here a little bit. Maybe we need to invest in a fog machine that we'll make use of in our assemblies. Maybe we need to encourage lots of clapping and hand-raising and swaying back and forth. Maybe we do need to create more of an experience here. Now, I certainly don't want to deny that when we come before God in worship, that that can, that can elicit genuine and holy emotions and passion for God. In fact, that's why I began here in Isaiah, the sixth chapter. What did Isaiah have here? Isaiah had quite the worship experience, if you ask me. He had this vision where he sees the throne room of God. There's angels flying back and forth everywhere. The ground is quaking beneath him. The room fills with smoke. This is awesome what Isaiah sees here. And Isaiah says he was changed by that. But unfortunately, unfortunately, many people today believe that that is something that can be replicated by human gimmickry. 
Where we can somehow manufacture religious fervor through the use of all kinds of bells and whistles and accoutrements. But is that what God wants? That's really the important question in all of this. Is that what God wants? Is that what God desires in worship? In fact, maybe the most fundamental question of all is, what does the Bible say about that? Well, this morning, we want to do what I'm afraid so many people are not doing. We want to turn to the Scriptures. We want to let the Word of God mold and change our thinking about worship as we identify and we make note of three observations about this idea of seeking a worship experience. And I want to do that for a couple of very pointed reasons. Number one... I want to talk about this because I want to try, at least do my part, to try and protect our young people. Young people, you're going to get invited from time to time. You're going to get invited by your friends, by your classmates, to go to church with them. To just come, hey, I know that you go to church, but hey, won't you spend the night with me on Saturday night? I go to church, and where I go to church, it's awesome. All kinds of amazing things going on there. It's exciting. It's cool. You'll leave having had a worship experience. And you know what, young people? You'll want to go. You will. You get just a sneak peek at what they're offering there. You'll want to go because it's visually and it is emotionally stimulating. This morning, I want you to understand why that is so dangerous. Secondly, not only do I want to help protect our young people... I want to say some things that will protect us as a local congregation. I believe it would be very naive of us to think that experience-driven worship, that that phenomenon, that it is safely outside the confines of this building and nothing could ever happen that would cause it to come in here and permeate this local body. That is naive at best. Many of these ideas, these worship experience ideas are not phenomenons that are singular to the denominational world. These are the very kinds of ideas that have slowly but surely crept into churches of Christ. And they can creep in even amongst us. They can subtly and very very innocently creep into our minds and before you know it, we end up offering worship that's really just all style, all pizzazz, doesn't have any real substance to it. And worst of all, it's worship that doesn't please and honor God. And I'll show you why that is this morning. My task today, for these next few moments, is to equip us with three key foundational thoughts so that we will be on guard for the error of experience-driven worship. And I want to start that this morning by saying something that I think and I would hope that everybody can agree on. Something that doesn't matter what a person's religious background is. We can all agree on this. I want to start by just saying that God desires worshipers. Would you find John the fourth chapter with me please? In John chapter 4, in this conversation with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, Jesus says here in John chapter 4 that God wants to connect with people. And that may be surprising, but He does. In John chapter 4 and in verse 23, Jesus says that the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such 
people to worship Him. God desires worshipers. God wants us to recognize Him for who He is and give Him the rightful place that only He deserves. In fact, if you go through the Old Testament, what is the big issue, the big problem that seems to appear on just about every single page of the Old Testament? It is the problem, it is the trouble of idolatry. The Israelites, God's chosen people, regularly, they struggled with this right here. They struggled with this because continually they were wandering away from God and they were worshiping and they were serving idols and false gods. And it drove God absolutely crazy. God sent His prophets. God sent plagues. God sent invading armies. God did everything He could to get His people to come back to Him and to connect with Him. And what's interesting about all of that is that never at any point during all of those efforts that God made with the Israelites, never at any point did God say, you know what, I know what will fix this. They're interested in all the the bells and whistles of idol worship. What I'll do is I'm going to prescribe fired up, emotion-driven, experience-based worship. That's what will get my people's attention again. That's what I'll do. That's how I'll get them to stay centered on me. I'm going to prescribe this frenzied and feverish worship where there's lots of swaying and emotion and there's a music and a drumbeat percussion pounding through all of it. No! You never see that in all of the Old Testament. And I want you to know, that's not even subject to debate. If you had gone to the tabernacle or to the temple... And people were worshiping God in Old Testament times. And they were worshiping God according to the law of Moses. What would you have seen? Well, what you would have seen, that worship service, is you would have seen something that was very, very quiet. Something that was very, very thoughtful. Something that in many ways was very, very bloody. Those animal sacrifices, they occurred on a daily basis to remind the worshiper of his or her sin. That worship would have been very, very contemplative. Now certainly, yes, there were times of joyous feasts. And there were as well the singing of praises from time to time. But that's nothing like the emotion-driven worship that is so commonplace today. That kind of stuff isn't found anywhere in the Old Testament. Actually, let me take that back. You do find that in the Old Testament. You find that in the Old Testament if you go down to the idol temple. That's where you found that kind of worship. You worship down at the church of Baal, that's exactly what you'll see. Right there you'll get all kinds of frenzy and fervor and excitement and just out of control kind of stuff down at the temple of Baal. But if you look in Exodus chapter 34, in Exodus 34, God does not hesitate to specifically rebuke and condemn that kind of worship. In Exodus chapter 34... One of Moses' admonitions for the people was that when they arrived in the land of Canaan, that instead of looking at their religious neighbors and saying, wow, how cool is that? Look at what they're doing over there in their church. How can we maybe integrate that into the worship of Jehovah God? Instead, Moses says, Exodus 34 verse 13, you shall tear down their altars. You shall break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The Lord says, cut it down. Eradicate it. 
Don't integrate it. Don't try to somehow synthesize it with the worship that God desires and the worship that God prescribes. So I want you to understand, you can't find this worship experience stuff in the Old Testament. And by the way, you can't find it in the New Testament either. Jesus regularly was butting heads with the worship of His day and time. The Pharisees and kind of the just the sham that they had turned worship into. But never is there a single occasion where Jesus says, i tell you what you guys need to do. What you guys need to do in order to really connect with God and worship Him in the way that He wants is you need to catch the fire. You need to just let go and let God. You need to just feel the Spirit. That's what you guys need. No, Jesus never says anything like that. In fact, if you'll find 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. In 1 Corinthians 14, in giving some regulations about the worship of the New Testament church, this idea of getting crazy and cutting loose and getting wild, it is specifically prohibited. In writing to a congregation where things had gotten out of control, Paul doesn't commend them for what they were doing. Instead, he sets them straight. And he concludes chapter 14 with this kind of summarizing point. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. And so here's my question. If God desires worshipers, and He does, and if God has given instructions on how worship is to be done, and He has, then why doesn't God ever tell us that what we need is we need worship experiences? That if that's really the best way to connect with God, then why doesn't God ever say that that's what He wanted or that that's what we needed? The truth of the matter is, this whole business of creating a worship experience that's that's all about kind of the the, the carnal, the physical, the visceral, and it appeals to to the fleshly senses... What that essentially is saying is it's saying, God, your ways, the stuff that you've laid out in your word, eh, it just doesn't work anymore. It doesn't, doesn't work in a modern culture of video screens and smartphones and music videos. But you know what, God? Even though your ways are a little bit outdated, good news. We know how to fix it. We figured out how to make it work. Really? Really? Does anybody really think that they're going to tell God how He ought to be worshipped? Does anybody really think that they've discovered something that God had never thought of before? Does anybody really think that they're going to fix God's lame worship services so that the church doesn't shrink and die because apparently God just doesn't really know what He's doing? Give me a break. God is well capable of communicating His will to human beings on these matters. He did it in the Old Testament. He's done it in the New Testament. And I'll just be candid with you. I am not surprised that experience-driven worship has swept across the denominational world because in the denominational world for a very long time now, there has been, by and large, a total lack of respect for the authority of God and His Word. But amongst brethren, amongst places where it says Church of Christ out on the sign, amongst the people who claim to be the ones who are seeking to restore New Testament Christianity, I'm shocked. I am greatly troubled. 
at the growing trend to seek to offer worshipers an experience instead of simply offering them the opportunity to worship God in the manner that He has instructed. Whatever happened to that old adage of doing Bible things in Bible ways? Whatever happened to doing all things by the authority of Christ, Colossians 3.17? Apparently what matters most in the mind of the modern churchgoer, what matters most is packing people in. That's what it's all about. We've got to get people in these doors. Don't want to shrink up. Don't want to die. Got to get more people in this building and we need to give them a memorable experience so that they'll keep coming back. But I would say secondly here, that that's treading on very, very thin ice. Because secondly, experiences, experiences just don't really prove much. Experiences don't really have a lasting effect. If you want an experience, the kind of thing that experience-driven churches are all about, then I'll just tell you, you really can't top the experiences that the sports industry offers. There's just no experience quite like the rush and the excitement of going to, being a part of a sporting event. Whether that's professional sports, collegiate sports, even high school sports or intramural sports. In fact, the experience that sporting events provides is so singular, people will actually pay money to go and have that experience. What do you think would happen if we put a sign out front that said, come back tonight at 6 o'clock and hear Josh's sermon. He's doing a Q&A lesson tonight. Come back tonight, it'll be $25. $45 if you want the prime seating. Some of you are laughing at that because that ain't the prime scene. The prime scene is like kind of right back there in the back. Pay us $25, $45 to come here and hear this guy preach. What do you think people are going to say to that? Nah, nah that's just not going to happen. But you know what? It happens in sports all the time. It happens up at Rupp Arena all the time. I was looking at the cost of tickets for next Saturday, this coming Saturday's game against Kansas. Face value for a ticket to Saturday's game against Kansas in the upper arena, the upper arena, face value is going for $112. And you know what? People are willing to shell that out. Why? Because they want that experience. They want the experience of being in the arena. Even in a day and time when we all have gigantic televisions, they provide these amazing home entertainment experiences, we're not content with that. We want to go there, be physically present. Because why? Because there's electricity in the air. The band is playing. The people are down on the court doing their... There's the sound. There's all of the noise going on. There's the cheering. You just you just get caught up in that, don't you? You get caught up in the moment of, of the experience. A couple years ago, Tiffany and I, we were down in Memphis. And we went down there to watch, a, to watch an NBA game. We went down there to watch the Washington Wizards play the Memphis Grizzlies. And we were there to watch the Wizards. John Wall plays for the Wizards. And that's who we were there to root for and cheer for. We like the Wizards because we like John Wall. That's who we came to cheer for. But you know what happened throughout the course of that game? In the heat of the game, everybody in the FedEx Forum in Memphis, they just started screaming and hollering for the Grizzlies. People at one point were all standing on their feet. And I remember the moment singularly. Courtney Lee, he caught this alley-oop and he slam-dunked it and got fouled. And I did and Tim did. We both jumped to our feet and we were cheering for the Grizzlies. Whoa! Way to go, Grizzlies! 
You see what happens? We weren't even there to cheer the Grizzlies. But you get caught up in that moment. That is an experience. But can I ask you about those kinds of experiences? Does it really last? No. No, it doesn't really last. Today, two years later, I'm not a Grizzlies fan. I haven't went out and bought all kinds of Grizzlies merchandise and got my season tickets to watch the Grizzlies. That was just a temporary surge of emotion. I came home the following week and I went back to my regular old way of life. And you know what that says to me? That says to me that experiences, they aren't nearly as transformative as we would like to think that they are. That they don't really affect lifelong change. You know, having this kind of rock concert, blowout, pep rally experience does not generate lifelong commitment and loyalty. And in fact, I can show you that in the Bible. Probably the best example of this in the Bible in Exodus the 19th chapter. Would you find Exodus chapter 19? We're going to be reading Exodus 19 a little bit later this week as part of our Bible reading schedule. And in Exodus 19, this is the people of God, the Israelites... They have been assembled at the mount known as Sinai. And I want you to notice what happened on that fateful day when the Israelites met with the Lord. In Exodus chapter 19, look in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. What a dramatic scene. God manifesting Himself in the smoke and the fire. There was thunder. There was lightning. The ground was literally shaking and quaking beneath Him. This was an awesome experience to be sure. And surely this experience, surely it's going to rally the people of God. It's going to cause them to rededicate their lives to the Lord and give themselves fully to Him. But what happened next? Forty days later, these people are bowed down and worshiping a metal cow. Now if God's pep rally, you get my meaning by that, if God's pep rally... If the kind of enthusiasm and fervor that can be generated by an appearance of the Lord Himself, if that won't make for lasting change, then what in the world makes us think that something that we generate as mere humans, that it could ever have a lasting effect? It won't. It won't last. And why won't it last? I'll tell you why it won't last. Because emotions don't last. We understand that, don't we? That emotions are are temporary, they're fleeting. You remember when you were in the third grade, guys? And you were just so in love with that pretty girl. And it was obvious that it was real. 
true, lifelong love because you gave her a note that said, do you love me? Check yes or no. And she checked yes. It's true love. It's got to be true love. That is until two weeks later when you were thinking about somebody else and she's thinking about somebody else. You see, emotions, they don't last. And that's true not just of emotions. That's even true of causes, even very worthy causes that we get behind. Sometimes that surge of emotion and sentimentality about various causes, even that doesn't last. Do you remember a couple of years ago when there was that awful terrorist attack in Paris? It's a terrible, awful ordeal over there. And on Facebook, kind of the immediate reaction was, if you're a Facebook user, was you changed your profile picture to the colors of the French flag. And that was your way of showing support for that call. Let me ask you, for folks who did that, what kind of lasting effect did that have on you? Do you think folks who changed their Facebook profile picture, that what that meant, is that meant that they were donating lots of money to suppress global terrorism? Do you think that that meant that they were doing all kinds of research on on ISIS and and other terrorist groups so that they could be be, uh, educated about those things? Do you think that that meant that they started actively campaigning against various terrorist organizations? No. No, No, that's not what that meant. Because when the media stopped talking about Paris and moved on to the next thing, what did everybody else do? Well, everybody changed their Facebook picture back to the old picture and they went on to the next thing as well. You see, that momentary rush of goodwill That momentary rush of good intentions, it did not produce lasting fruit. Would you look in the New Testament with me in Luke chapter 9? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus meets up with some people who they had emotion. They had emotion for the Lord. And they were fired up. They said, oh Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus wanted to know, well, okay. Is this just some fleeting emotion that you're having right now? Or are we talking about real commitment here? Because there's a world of difference in those two ideas. Well, look in Luke 9, Luke 9 verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm going to change my Facebook status, Jesus. I'm going to change it to where it says, follower of Christ. That's who I'm going to be. You sure about that? Verse 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, oh Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 60. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61. Yet another said, oh, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say well to those in my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This emotional surge, this rush of, of fiery feeling, oh, oh, I'm on team Jesus now. It didn't last. What Jesus was looking for then is the very same thing that Jesus is looking for now. Jesus is looking for real, lasting commitment. And in the Bible, in the New Testament, there were people who understood that. There were people who lived out the real kind of lasting commitment that Jesus called for. There were people who literally died for the cause of Christ. Now, do we really imagine that for those people, when the sword was being held to their throat and their lives were being threatened, 
Do we really imagine that the reason that they remained true to Christ all the way to their death was because they had had their feelings revved up by a spiritual pep rally the Sunday before? Or did they remain true to Christ because something much deeper was at work in their heart and in their soul? That worship experience that so many people are looking for today, yes, it may produce a a brief emotional high, kind of a spike, but it doesn't produce lasting commitment and loyalty to Christ. All of that then leads me to this third and final observation this morning. Because while so many people today are chasing after the worship experience, it seems to me that what God values is God values information over experiences and emotions. Maybe the most important passage that I can offer in this connection is in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Did you find Deuteronomy chapter 4? In Deuteronomy 4, Moses actually reminds the people about that awesome experience that did occur at Mount Sinai. He says, hey guys, y'all remember that? Apparently you, you didn't didn't really have the lasting effect that it should have had. But Moses uses that event as a catalyst to say, it really wasn't about the experience. It wasn't about the emotions that you felt that day when God appeared on the mountain. What was the point of all of that? Well, the point of all of that was this, Moses says, Deuteronomy 4 verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, there was only a voice. And He declared to you His covenant, which He commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And He wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. God wants people... To know Him. And the primary way that we come to know Him is not through emotional experiences. The primary way that we come to know God is through His Word. And I will confess to you, I grow weary of people today. Sometimes I even hear this in kind of small doses. I hear this even from brethren. But I grow weary of people dissing sermons and Bible classes as being, well, that's the that, 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 that's, that's not really the, the main way that you learn about God. I grow weary of people thinking that and offering all these other things when it is God Himself who said, teach my people my word. That's from the mouth of the Lord. It is so easy for us to fall in love with fire and emotion. We like that and we want lots of that. But that is not what God says draws people close to Him. That is not what develops real strong relationship with the Lord. As we've noted already, experiences, they're not even part of God's design for worship. And generally speaking, point number two, they don't even work. So what does work? What does work here? This, God's Word, learning God's Word. That fellow who wrote that article that I referenced at the beginning of the lesson, James Norred. He sees things, he sees things very, very differently. He sees churches of Christ shrinking and withering up and dying. And so his thought is, you know, all these sermons and Bible classes, that's just not getting it done. He said the following in his piece. He says, so our worship services and our Bible classes 
are designed to give out information and to prove points. We have teachers who dispense information and we have preachers who prove their points. And so it was just assumed that education leads to transformation. Education leads to transformation. He's talking about that in a derogatory way. You know what? I'll take that. I'll take that all day and tomorrow. Because God seems to think that education does lead to transformation. Isn't that what He just said through Moses? That the Lord commanded me to teach you, instruct you, educate you. So that why? So that you might do these things, perform these things, be transformed by these things. Isn't that exactly why? All throughout the history of time, God sent preachers, God sent men like Noah and Moses and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Malachi and Hosea and John the Baptist. Isn't that why on the day of Pentecost that it was the Word of God that was preached? Because of the information then that was dispensed in Acts the second chapter that resulted in massive transformation. Isn't that why as well? Acts chapter 8 tells us that those early Christians, they went everywhere doing what? Preaching the Word. And isn't that why Paul said that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word? And isn't that why Jesus, Jesus, isn't that why Jesus, the Bible says, preached the gospel of the kingdom, Mark 9, or Matthew 9, 35. If preaching is so bad, if making points, if dispensing information, if that's so useless, if education does not lead to transformation, then why is everybody in the Bible doing it? I'll tell you why everybody in the Bible is doing it. Because God values the dispensing of His information over short-lived emotions and experiences. Can I suggest to you what the real problem here is? The real problem here is that people don't believe Hebrews chapter 4. Would you find Hebrews 4, one final verse this morning? People today want to believe that the power, what really transforms a person, is by having a soul-stirring experience. That's where the power lies. But Hebrews chapter 4 says otherwise. In Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 12, the Hebrew writer says, For the Word of God is living and active. Some translations say it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. I do not... I do not this morning want to give the impression that vibrant, heartfelt worship in an atmosphere where there is joy and there is energy and there is genuine, not manufactured, but genuine excitement on the part of the worshipers, that somehow that is unimportant. I am not saying that this morning. But you know what I am saying? I am saying that that's not what drives the train. Hebrews 4 verse 12 tells us what's driving the train. It is the living Word of God that moves us and changes us and makes us what we ought to be. That is where the power lies. And the folly 
of experience-driven worship is that it ends up just pitching out, tossing away the critical component, the critical element that has always made devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, the critical element that has always transformed people's lives, the living and active Word of God. The experience-driven church, they say, come, come and Come and feel something. Come and have an experience. Come and feel something. But it is Jesus, the Son of God, who says, Come and learn. Come and learn of me. You and I must decide right now which one of those options really pleases the Lord. Let me close this morning with a final word to our young people. Young people, you are going to get asked. You are going to get invited. You are going to have friends who are going to say, Hey, come church with me. I know that it's important for you to go to church. I go to church somewhere. Won't you just come church with me? Your friends are going to ask that. When you start dating, that boyfriend's going to ask that. That girlfriend's going to ask that. Come church with me. And I want you to understand that in inviting you to come to their church that offers the worship experience, they do not mean evil by inviting you to come. They are not intentionally trying to destroy your soul, no. But I want you to understand that they are inviting you to take part in a very different approach to worship. And if you go and take even just just a little bite of that, it will change your view on God's approach to worship. Now, I am not here this morning to tell you what you ought to do. You're going to have to make that decision on your own. But I am, with every ounce of energy and care and compassion that I have, I am admonishing you. I am warning you that the bands and the lights and the video screens and the fog machines and the passion and the excitement, I want you to understand that that is an enormously seductive experience. And it can end up changing your attitude toward God's simple worship as given in Scripture. Which is why you need to be thinking. That's why you need to be making some decisions. You need to be developing and building some convictions now so that you're not caught flat-footed and get drawn into something that ends up taking you away from the Lord. We need to know. We need to understand. And we need to trust what God's Word teaches about how to truly worship Him in spirit and in truth. That's what the Father desires. That is what pleases Him. Now in just a moment, we're going to extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ. If you are not a Christian this morning, it may be that you're not a Christian because you don't feel that you have all the information that you need. If that is the case, you're in a wonderful place. You're in a place, you're amongst people who are ready to share that information with you. It's called the gospel, the good news. And we're eager to share that good news with others. We'll sit down with the Bible, help you get the information that you need about Jesus, about sin, and about salvation so that you can be saved. If, however, you're not a Christian, but you do have the information, and you're just not doing anything with it, you're just sitting on go, Can I ask, what exactly is hindering you today? What is preventing you from acting 
on what I hope and, and, and I'm sure you know to be true. What you know this book teaches. We're going to sing a song of encouragement in just a moment. There's a great day coming. And we're going to sing that song. We are, brothers and sisters. We're going to sing that song with some emotion. Not manufacturing it, but out of a sincere emotion. A heart for God and a heart and a care and concern for others. To warn them, there is a great day coming. And there's going to be a bright day coming for those who are saved. For those who have had their sins washed away in baptism and have lived faithfully for the Lord. But there's also a verse that says there's going to be a sad day coming. We want you to be ready. We don't want you to be a part of a sad day. We want you to be a part of that bright day, that great day when you can go to heaven and be with the Lord for all of eternity. Can we help somebody this morning to put Christ on in baptism? Can we help somebody this morning to serve the Lord in a better way? Can we help somebody today to serve Jesus? If so, would you make your way down front and make those wishes known? Do it while we stand and while we sing.